Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident, rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. Welcome back. Today, we're going to take you back to the Shepherd Center as I share a number of never-before-published journal entries. We have a lot to cover today as those entries give an inside glimpse into the rawness of my being at odds with the approach of the medical team for Archer and the prickly navigation of that growing conflict, as well as the power of certain heartwarming written messages and handmade gifts to lift the spirit of someone in a long-term rehabilitation situation. Did you know the nonprofit I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, is now the Blink of an Eye nonprofit? And Blink of an Eye is a proud sponsor of Blink of an Eye podcast. And Blink of an Eye is on social media. You can find out more about the Blink of an Eye initiatives and learn more about the Science of Trauma Conference and the inaugural online symposium, November the 3rd, 2022, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, a learning experience you don't want to miss. Two nationally renowned physicians and brain researchers will present for the first time together. Dr. Babbitt Kateb from the Brain Mapping Institute on Brain Mapping Trauma in the body, and Dr. Dan Siegel on the interpersonal neurobiological ways we can all resolve trauma in our bodies and further trauma healing for others. If you are a parent, a grandparent, a coach, an athlete, a teacher, clergy, mental health professional, integrative health professional, lawyer or law enforcement personnel, or surgeon, doctor, nurse, physical therapist, occupational therapist, you won't want to miss this three-hour event and three hours of continuing education credit opportunity, as well as continuing medical education credits through a partnership with Medical Education Resources. Register now at http colon backslash backslash events dot I see that dot org. That's events dot the letters I C T H A T dot org. You can follow blink of an eye dot org on Instagram at blink of an eye nonprofit and we're on Facebook at the URL Facebook dot com backslash www dot blink of an eye dot org. Register now for the Science of Trauma 3-Hour Symposium, November the 3rd, 
2022 at events.icthat.org. Links to those platforms will be in the show notes. Now, for today's Blink of an Eye story episode. Well, it's more of a reflection on our recent story episodes, if you will. There has been so much going on at the Shepherd Center at this time in the story as I was beginning to think about Archer's life outside the hospital and rehabilitation, and honestly, beginning to think about all our lives outside the hospital, I had to figure out a way that we would return to our lives. But I really had no idea what those lives might look like. I thought it might be best for you if I slowed the pace down of the longer blog entries to look back and fill in some of the details, hoping it might be restorative for you too. So for this episode, I invite you to rest a bit and join me in a recap of some more behind-the-scenes days and personal journal entries I was not able to share back then as we then gear up for the life-changing episodes ahead that will come in the rest of Season 3. In the last few story episodes, you heard about my remarkable journey of going home for two days. Really, 24 hours and the whirlwind of logistics, work, self-care, emotional meltdowns, and emotional pick-me-ups, and everything in between. My long-awaited and very quick trip back to Baltimore meant I had to pack a lot into only a couple of days. But you know, part of trauma healing is to go back and look at it all more closely more slowly, which is what we did in Episodes 12 and 13, Going Home, Part 1 and Part 2, which covered just one 24-hour period and included the then-unreleased Archer blog. So much of what I am able to share now in the blink of an eye story, I was unable to share back then for a variety of reasons, as you now know. Well, those reasons gained some traction, as you will hear about today. And I may have forgotten so much of it, but for the many personal notes I found. I encourage any of you who might find yourself in a fast-moving or complicated medical situation, and it's very likely you will, as your parents age, to take real-time notes, as I did, to capture events as they actually unfold. Whether you share those notes or not, 
you will have them for later, for your going back, when you are a bit more arm's length, to gain new perspective, or at the very least, to let you know how far you have come. I never imagined how helpful it would be to have those notes in real time. To complete a story I myself was racing through. Without time to fully process back then. I now also realize the restorative power of going back. Not only to fill in for deeper understanding and not to relive it in a re-traumatizing kind of way, but to relive it all in a way that has some healthy distance that only time can provide, which allows for a greater ability to take it all in as it was, a little more fully, but in smaller doses to digest it a bit more. This is part of the integrative path of trauma healing. It's something that is called titration, but I did not know that back then. I just got lucky, it seems, to have heard the whisper in my thoughts telling me to write it all down. I may have not only forgotten, but overridden the troubling reality, but for those notes, that life at the Shepherd Center was for us an uphill battle. While we so wanted to be there, it felt, well, it felt like we were unwanted guests more than ever as each day passed. It felt to me that Archer's being on the ventilator was not just a barrier we all could see, but that they did not see Archer's potential that could blossom if he could just get off a ventilator. And we saw the Shepherd Center as the greatest hope for that happening. But it seemed they only saw a failure in the rehabilitation gym. Oh, I could feel the sting of icy coldness as they looked at us that we did not belong there. And I couldn't help but to wonder if they saw Archer as a stain on their almost perfect record. It was true. You might have had this gut feeling yourself when you know someone doesn't want you around because it doesn't make them look good. I think it's all about failure, really, in our highly competitive transactional world, even in a rehab facility. But this facility was a world-class facility with a reputation to keep up. 
they wanted Archer out of there. And I wanted him to stay. The irony of it was sobering. It was also unsettling, to say the very least. There was a pit in my stomach that grew with each passing day, and I knew I had to negotiate for each day we were there. But I still didn't know how in this strange new culture. Direct conversation with the main rehab doctor seemed to not be the correct channel of communication. How ironic to feel so unsafe and so desperate to not be kicked to the curb. As it relates to this episode, in the spirit of authenticity, I felt it necessary back then that I not share with my family and friends this horrid truth, this increasing tension. Because I felt it was very, very delicate, and I needed to figure it out. And I was afraid like it was somehow best to keep the real truth a secret, else it be perceived as a criticism or a failure, which in part it was. But there was not enough relationship to speak frankly, and I felt there could be grave repercussions for Archer if we were kicked out. Where would we go? So I decided to do this short flashback episode and tell all, as it were, and share with you my personal unpublished journal notes, because I do not think I am the only parent who has been in this situation, and certainly not the only spinal cord injury parent. And I think it's very real and something deserving of a larger discussion with spinal cord injury rehab facilities and parents. What I felt we desperately needed was someone, anyone at Shepherd, to believe in Archer. I believed in them, that they had the expertise to do their magic that I had heard so much about. And I believed that Archer was their man but I don't think they saw it that way. Perhaps I didn't either at some level. But you see, for me, it wasn't that we just needed their rehab. We needed their rehab with a different focus than the focus they had set forth. I had readjusted my hope over the last intense week that they would rehabilitate Archer so he could walk again, that they would rehabilitate Archer to use his arms and hands again. While I still clung to that as a possibility, 
my new primary hope and goal was that they would rehabilitate Archer so he could breathe again. The crazy part is that that is what Archer has said all along as he blinked his eyes to the ABC board in the ICU in response to the physical therapist's question about his rehab goal. I want to breathe on my own. But I don't think the staff, or even I, took that desire at face value. That was his goal. But it was hard to say if that rehab goal was shared by Shepard. And I was beginning to be aware of a thought not yet fully formed in my mind that maybe Shepard could not actually fulfill Archer's goal. As they had responded, we'll get you off this ventilator in three days. I think Archer knew far more about himself and his injury than any of us. I knew it was going to be a hard road for Archer. But as scared as I was for his future, as I could see that everything familiar in our lives was in the process of changing, I felt the growing fortitude to persevere for him, for us both, and for my family. And that itself is now another profound learning that had emerged for me and perhaps for you too about our trauma healing journeys. It's never just one awful horrific experience when you feel annihilated. It's never just one take your breath away in awe experience when you feel totally at one. It's all of it, all of it together. The two sides of the same coin, your coin, my coin, the coin of life, devastation and healing, death and rebirth, fracture and repair. I know now the journey is about integrating it all. And those tender moments which you and I are capable of offering to each other allow us to feel into the depth of our losses and also to feel the sweetness that we are more than the loss and we can rise back up again, connected. It's all there. And it's in our DNA and in our cellular memory. And when we can recall both together, we move another step forward on the path 
of integration, trauma healing. Life touches us and we touch life. Welcome to episode 15, I Want to Breathe on My Own. Okay, so as we walk back into the story, that flight to Orlando was still in my cellular memory and was a prime example of this very real eye-opening effect as I look back years later. You see, I hadn't remembered that incident until I read my own personal journal entry. And when I did so, I was flooded with the same feelings I had then. But the insight was even more profound to me, how our bodies store the trauma energy in our cells that has us freeze in terror or tremble when reminded of something horrible in the past. But our bodies also store the rush of well-being in our cellular memory as well. That can then be accessed again with a simple shift of attention. So we have a choice in where we choose to place our attention. I had many special moments back then, and I am recalling them now. I imagine you have many special moments yourself that have impacted you as you take a moment to recall just one. Yeah, it's really quite extraordinary how our minds can bring us the calm we need, especially when our bodies can remember the feeling of well-being. So it was in the extreme and constant heightened response I felt I was in during those days of the story that the moments of awe and of witness to something beautiful carried even greater significance. And I realized nothing was ever the same. And I knew deep down it may never be again. And as frightening as that was to me, I remembered I had to seek comfort in the potential that change brings. I found a number of personal journal notes during this time in the blink of an eye story that might give some texture in a real-life way to how the brain and body respond to trauma happening over an elongated period of time. It was day 51 in the story. Think about your life, too, and what you might be learning and thinking a bit differently about as well. So, okay, we're about to return to the Shepherd Center and to Archer and to our rehabilitation battle. 
and it's tough. But it also had these glimmering, sparkling moments. So settle in. Take a deep breath and feel your feet. Wiggle them around as you acknowledge your own traumas and triumphs. And as you listen, perhaps notice anything still lingering in your life that might get kicked up and that might need some going back to as well. Here we go. Day 51, three weeks now at Shepherd. personal journal entry. And then there was the first night back in the wee hours of the night when the respiratory therapist in his blue scrubs and short cropped hair came dashing in as Archer's monitors were alarming that he needed suctioning and we had to move quickly. I liked the RT immediately. He was tattooed and earnest and very competent, working quickly and efficiently. He seemed to have had a lot of experience deep suctioning lungs, as gruesome as it was each time, with Archer gagging and trying like his life depended on it. It did, to cough up that sucker clogging his airways. The man was also gentle and seemed to care about Archer's comfort. When the ordeal was over, I thanked him and asked his name. He told me I probably wouldn't see him again. Why, I asked. I thought maybe because it was three o'clock in the morning and the graveyard shift was not his regular gig, but that wasn't it. He said, because I'm leaving, Shepard, this is my last night. He said he was a military brat and had wanted to be a paramedic his whole life. That he had learned all about deep lung suctioning when he had served in a war overseas. But that the work at Shepherd on young kids trying so hard like Archer and not given a full chance was too hard on him and he couldn't do it anymore. I was so stunned. He said, Shepherd's tough, and when some kids are trying real hard to be weaned, they get sent home if they're not fast enough. He shook his head. I felt a chill go up my spine as I peered at him in the blue light of Archer's monitor. He said, they have their way or no way. And he told me his way was not their way. And then he told me to keep fighting. I asked him where he was going. And he said he didn't know. That was how my first night back was. I remembered that man, and I've wondered about him from time to time. You know how that is when people leave an impression on you. He told me 
Archer was a fighter and that he could see that. I'll never forget that acknowledgement that he saw the Archer I knew. I thanked him. He thanked me. And I felt the tears stinging in my eyes as what I had been sensing in my gut was confirmed. Archer was in danger of being sent home or someplace. As I went back to my fold-out chair and curled up in a blanket, in the darkness I had a lot to think about. And I thought about how skillful that man was and how grateful I was for him. You know what else he did that night? He showed me how I could do the suction. And he wanted to show me a little technique that would allow Archer's body to recalibrate before forcing the tube down further. Oh, I thanked him for that. And he said, You're welcome, Mama Bear. And it was that little reciprocal exchange that strengthened me. Like he saw me, too. Those little exchanges were like little God winks. I felt it was like grace reminding me to keep doing what I was doing, that I was in alignment, I don't know, something like that, with God's plan for me. In my quiet moments, this was a profound concept that I often pondered. I found that feeling of being one with something good and holy just as accessible as I found it elusive. Could I stay responsive to whatever it was that seemed to present itself and respond in ways God would respond? I wanted to. Was staying at Shepherd so Archer could breathe on his own part of our holy path? I felt I had already not made the best tactical move, and I really needed guidance at Shepherd. You see, before I had left Shepherd to go home to Baltimore, I had begun to work with a man in insurance and billing to get Archer on Georgia Medicaid, believing he would be at Shepherd for a number of months and then into their outpatient program. I was braced for living in Atlanta for many months, and I was learning about what was available, and it was amazing. And I'd also inquired to see if Archer could be transferred 
into the care of Dr. Lindsay. He was the physician who made it possible for us to be there. Or if we could be transferred to any other physiatrist at Shepherd, as I wanted to get the right people on Archer's team. And I felt Archer's current rehab doctor was just not one of them. But my request was denied. So now that I had returned and Archer had transferred out of the ICU into the adolescent rehab, which was her unit, I had been on the lookout for her, hoping maybe we could start over and reconnect and discuss the plan for Archer. But it seemed my request had put me at odds with Archer's lead physiatrist because when I passed her in the hallway, when she was talking with another patient and family, and I walked by and said, hello, the family member turned and said, hi, but Archer's doctor looked away as if I didn't exist. It made me feel small and helpless. Oh, I kept in regular dialogue with God, asking for his grace many times a day. I felt I had done something wrong or unacceptable. So I prayed to my favorite intercessor, Mary, and the Holy Spirit for the wisdom and courage and humility to do whatever God's will was for Archer. But let me tell you, it was a tall order for me to try to disentangle what I thought was best from what might be a higher purpose. As I tried to calm my whirling, problem-solving brain, I did have an idea that felt right to ask for a family meeting with the rehabilitation team, not just with his lead doctor. I did have to make that request through her, and I did, and I was denied. At first because she said they could not pull everyone away from their jobs just to meet with me. That's kind of how she said it. Oh, but that caused me to ask if there were a time when they all met together anyway, so I wouldn't be a burden. She responded, yes, that they meet two times a week about the patients, but that the meetings were with staff and not families. I asked if it could be with a family. She said no, they discussed all the patients. I asked if it could be with a family just when that one patient was being discussed. She said no again. I could tell I was exhausting her. But I was suspicious of the real possibility that Archer would fall through the cracks and that he'd just be dismissed without a fighting chance. 
And it was true, we had lost almost three weeks of rehabilitation time delayed in Shepard's ICU about his lungs. What was also true, and I couldn't do anything about it, was that Archer himself was also not exactly perky in rehab, as he'd arrived not only with all the tubes and the oxygen tank and contraptions, but his head and shoulders were covered with white towels, like an Arab turban, to absorb the profuse sweating from his ongoing autonomic dysreflexia. And he wasn't eating, and he was exhausted from the energy it took trying to breathe and be suctioned all night long. And it occurred to me, the physical therapy staff knew little, perhaps, of that side of Archer's every day. All this put me on guard again, ready to fend for my son. And I knew that was not the most receptive posture when I was asking for grace and guidance. But it was also hard not to be armored. So it was complicated. But I love the creative miracle prayer. And I place my trust that there would be a creative miracle. I knew we were going to turn a corner, that Archer was going to make it and turn a corner. I felt that. I was also working through resigning myself that what was around that corner might not be what I wanted to see. But I felt if I kept a clear vision of what I did want to see, that it could happen. I suppose, looking back now, that my vision may have been crystal clear, and I wouldn't change that for the world. But it was not taking in the complete picture. But I couldn't discern all that back then. Or maybe it was that my brain would not allow me to take in any other possibility. It was complicated. Here's another personal journal entry. I am a mother of five, not just one. The other kids have stuff going on too. I wish Billy were here. Like the old days, when we would lie in bed at night and go through the mental Rolodex of our children, comparing notes, trying to stay abreast of our family and on the same page as parents. Paula, good. Petey, I think okay, how about you? Yup. Dewey, mm, well, I'm worried about his feeling picked on. Really, why? And we'd talk. Archer? Good. Dutch? 
Hmm, gonna be a tough decision to choose one spring sport over another. That's how it went in the old days. It was always at least one of the five who had something going on. And it was always shifting between kids. But as I lay here in the fold-out chair, going down the list of children in my mind, I miss those days. And it seems each one of the children now has something very significant going on, all of them amidst the backdrop of all this craziness. And I am here in Atlanta, and it feels far away. And then there's Archer. I look at him lying there, and I hear his faint breathing and the sounds of the machines. And I feel tears rolling down my cheeks again because really nothing is ever going to be the same if we don't get him breathing. While the other kids and I are checking in with each other regularly on our family group text, Paula told me she's keeping the boys apprised about Archer since she's the only one who reads the family and friends updates before she posts them for me. It's such a help to me. I also wonder about the toll all of this might be taking on her. She confessed she couldn't read many of them and that the boys said it was too hard as well. They all just want to know if Archer's getting better. What do I tell them? I was also still wondering at my new shift of perspective on disability. I guess I was living with both the hope for the creative miracle and the dawning reality that Archer might be in a chair for the rest of his life. I felt the heavy stab of that in my heart. I remember it was also about this time that I opened one of the many pieces of mail that poured in daily that brought a smile to my face. It was an envelope full of coins. The note did not read as so many others did. Dear Mrs. Sempt, you don't know me, but such correspondences that always touch me. But this one, with the very heavy envelope, said, Hi, Mrs. Sempt. This is for Archer's recovery. Our fourth grade class had a bake sale. It's $83.25. We hope you can use it. We are Archer Strong, and we're wearing our green wristbands. The fourth grade cathedral school. I can't tell you how broad the smile was that came across my face. I felt my cheeks so stretched out and so spontaneous. Oh, 
how I loved each one of those kids and each parent who baked the brownies or Rice Krispie treats and chocolate chip cookies. It felt so good. It was amazing to me how we can shift our entire worldview if we just focus on something else. And it can change how our bodies feel. I had learned over the years about something called resourcing, where it's possible to access parts of your body that are calm when you are otherwise activated and tight or panicky. I was very aware at how I could stay focused on those fourth graders and their love and self-efficacy at baking and selling and deciding to give their proceeds to us and the feeling of gratitude and sweetness it gave me. I could feel that in my chest. And how my steady focus on that feeling could change the quality of the flickers of stabbing sadness that I had also felt in my chest, that I had been feeling about Archer's future. And sort of allow those to loosen a bit. It didn't make them all go away but it lessened them and actually changed the quality where I didn't feel stabbed, at least in those moments. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. It can be difficult to look at the good in others or even within ourselves and to really feel that goodness when we are so very distressed. It's difficult. That's true but it's not impossible. And that is also true. I wonder if that resonates for you. Here's another personal journal entry. I don't know how to describe how it's possible to be in Atlanta and so homesick for Baltimore and then while home being so homesick to get back to Archer in Atlanta I think I am losing it that journal note made me laugh when I read it because it wasn't the first time I've had such strong pangs to be back with my children when I am away from them I now know That panicky feeling is all about disconnection, a still not fully resolved lingering feeling in my own life of being separated from the human source, from my dad. Maybe you have felt that way too. So it wasn't really funny. It was rather tragic. But you know what I mean when you have to laugh because something is just so painfully, unbelievably true. 
I thought I had been homesick for Baltimore, and then, ironically, for the Shepherd Center, my new home. But that wasn't quite it. I had been homesick for Dutch, and then homesick for Archer. Isn't it funny how that works? Homesickness for a person. We find the comforting feeling of being home with our connection to certain people, don't we? That warm familiarity where it's easy. Well, this episode includes the end to a short family and friends update I sent on day 51 from the Shepherd Center. I suppose you could say my updates written in this time were written in a state of homesickness and an unsettling awareness reminiscing on how much change was happening in our lives. We were never going to be the same. And the stark truth of that was standing there, looking at me. But I couldn't and didn't want to stop and fully see that. It wasn't just change with my whole worldview on disability, but it was the change of having to incorporate disability into every part of our lives. Although I didn't yet fully see that either, because I didn't want to. I still believed and held out that Archer Sempt would breathe on his own and walk. I was told there would be a mass at the cathedral church to pray for a creative miracle back in Baltimore, which made me reflect on the prayer vigil for Archer five or six weeks before. I had learned that there was a girl, a friend of Archer's from his elementary school class at the cathedral, who played her guitar in that candlelight service held out of doors in the warm summer air as school started back up. Her name is Miranda Lassiter, and just recently I was sent a recording of the songs Miranda sung that night. You remember the landslide song? Well, that is one she chose and the familiar ode and the words pierced me as I listened in, now with my new perspective. Ocean tides, can I end 
how a girl of such tender years, 16, 17, could choose a song that so moved me was another connection I now will hold very dear. I thought you might like to hear her beautiful young voice as you imagine many hundred young people who are children's friends and their parents who were our friends, so many of them athletes, all strong, healthy, and virulent teenage boys and girls, gathered on a large grassy slope of land, holding candles, listening to Miranda, listening to Billy, praying for Archer together, people of all faith traditions, mainly Christian and Jewish, but unified in a prayer for a creative miracle, holding their lit candles in the dusky night. I wondered what I was afraid of changing, and the answer was probably everything. I liked our life. I couldn't imagine it changing the way it might. There was a wistfulness and an urgency, and I did have this awareness that I would toggle from sadness to hopefulness and back to sadness but not for long as I was dancing a clumsy dance to stay hopeful. I didn't always know the steps, but I did know the familiar tune of hopefulness. I honestly think I perfected that tune as a little girl, believing and hoping and waiting for my deceased father to come back home to me. The fact that there were these gatherings in unified prayer happening back home with people we loved stoked my sense of hopefulness. And I also truly felt that we were loved. I felt connected. When tumultuous change is underfoot, I think the only way to stay grounded is to kindle that feeling of connection, even connection with Mother Earth herself. Otherwise, it's easy to become untethered. My being away for so long from our Baltimore home, with only a couple short visits back, was making me feel very sentimental at the thought of our family home and all that might have to change. Home modifications were on my mind as well, as all the memories our home contained in the rooms I loved every inch of, lived in, 
by seven people. You heard about some of those memories yourself in some of Season three's episodes. Archer told the story of those daring childhood jump hugs, where he and his brothers would jump off the highest stairs they could muster right into Billy's arms on a regular nightly basis. But as I thought about those stairs, I could feel the immediate sting in my eyes again. And it was also perversely comforting to feel that familiar sting in my eyes as it made me feel sort of alive, reminded of what really mattered to me. There were moments like these that I truly held onto and cherished during those few quiet minutes in the nighttime from the daily crazy whirlwind of this ICU now rehab experience. I invite you to embrace your feelings of sentimentality and honestly, any deep sadness you harbor about some loss or separation in your life. It's all part of the experience of being human. We can't escape it. For me, it was a very heart-tearing, gut-wrenching sadness that just socked me at times. And then I realized I was just making it up that everything was going to change. I would say to myself, it doesn't have to change. Well, part of that was true, but part of it was a blind spot I had. But it was what got me through these times. And I want any of you to know that if you know that you have a blind spot and you're clinging to something too, before you have accepted something else and it's helping you get by, that's okay. It's just your brain trying to protect you. The real wisdom is in listening to your body and to your heart. And I knew this too back then. I would close my eyes as I sat next to Archer's bed as he rested and allow myself to go back to those powerful feelings of being gut-punched by sadness and change. And I would allow the tears to roll down my cheeks. And I would try to sit in the discomfort and allow those powerful feelings to move through me without my having to do anything with them, which included not having them run me into the ground. Maybe you have done the same thing too. And then when washed through and you feel a little more settled, possibly a little more drained, to then shift your attention and rest when you can. 
If only I could have done that all day long. I was not capable. As part of my look back, I am aware how tunnel-visioned I still was. That whole new set of powerful feelings arising in me, panic and hope, was accompanied by suspicion and defensiveness. I was haunted by the possibility that Shepard may tell us it was time for Archer to go, and I couldn't let that happen. And it incensed me. Shepard was getting in my way. They were messing up the plan, the potential for the creative miracle. I asked theoretically in my head, on my high horse, and just where do you think he would go? I would say to myself, you're supposed to be the best in the world. Atlanticare had discharged Archer as a respiratory failure, and we were lucky to get out. Would Shepard discharge us too? A man I didn't know named Max had been writing to me with letters from Virginia telling me his wife had had a horrible experience at Shepard and that I had to be very careful and not trust Shepard. Because if Archer were not performing, Shepard would discharge him to an LTAC. I didn't know what an LTAC was, as I had never heard that term before. I looked it up in the Shepard Library up on the fourth floor. It was true back then in 2015 that I did not know about or know how to do a Google search. But I found out that it meant long-term acute care facility. He wrote me often as he said he was following my blogs. Well, one of the man's later letters told me quadriplegics die in LTACs because LTACs have no rehabilitation staff or knowledge about spinal cord injury, that the staff-to-patient ratio is 1 to 20, and there is no one there to get a quad up out of bed, and no one there to even turn the quad's body for regular weight shifts. So the quadriplegic gets bed sores quickly and dies from that. I thought that sounded absolutely horrific. I also thought that surely the man was a little extreme and even possibly a little kooky. But it did make me shudder. And I did file it away in my memory. The question of would Shepard be able or want to help us, or would they send us away, nagged at me often, as you know. And if I'm being honest, it nagged at me incessantly. And Max's regular letters had me on high alert. I really didn't know. I was being challenged in so many new ways and not just about the medical aspects of spinal cord injury and all the logistics. You know, you often don't realize how much inner strength, though, is within you. 
until you are forced to face hardship head on. I was leaning into God so many moments of the day. Learning to ask for His help in more intimate ways, like help me not fall into despair, Lord. Help me stay receptive, Lord, so I can learn. I was aware of how much help I needed, and I yearned for someone who knew and someone I could confide in. It felt like I was walking on eggshells with Archer's doctor and that it was too dangerous to even bring up a concern as that might be the lever they used to send us away. So I got closer and closer to God and asked for strength to do the right thing, for wisdom, for what was the right thing. Family and Friends Update End of the Day Day 51 So, this is my formal announcement to my family that I'm giving permission in my absence to clear out desk drawers and closets and begin the process of moving things as we begin the preparations for a new physical home space for Archer and the necessary home modifications, graced by angels again, who have come forward to help us with planning, space, and storage. It is actually hard for me to think of this since our 115-year-old house doesn't lend itself to any elevator and such. While the first floor has brought us so many good and fond memories of gatherings and sharing of knowledge and ideas with friends and class parties and gatherings for authors and nonprofits whose missions we champion and will be Archer's space for the same activities. I feel the little stab of that potential loss that Archer may not ever, until the miracle, get to the third floor where his bedroom is again and lie in his bed where he has daydreamed and night dreamed and done a lot of art. The same room Paula told me she wrote of in her college essays. Isn't that silly to feel that kind of sadness over something like material space, a room? But each room of our home has been a special space, very lived in, as there are a lot of us. Each room always has a good place to relax and read. He may not see the upstairs again. And the first floor? may be altered in ways that remove some of the living-in space that has brought him joy. You know how it is with a home. The rooms are places where you rest 
share ideas and laugh and cry and argue and make up and love and gather to break bread. I want Archer to have all that on the first floor. We need to figure out Hoya lifts and wide enough entryways and spaces at tables for him and roll-in showers large enough for power chairs. Oh, oh yes, I asked some wise moms of quad kids about the terminology for electric motorized wheelchairs. They're called power chairs. I like that. In fact, it was my new friend, Kelly Sidnor, who introduced me to this amazing term. Kelly and I bonded quickly during Archer's recovery. She was one of the moms of a quadriplegic who reached out to me. She offered me a lot of valuable advice, including what to call Archer's chair. She wrote a text to me on September 24, 2015, saying, I'm reading your blog, and I did chuckle over your description of Archer's chair. Electric or mobile? Ha ha! How about power chair? That's the term we use. It's powerful, and it empowers him to be more independent. So much better. Thank you, Kelly, for your kindness and knowledge. And Archer was making progress in that power chair. And that buoyed me. Here's more of the update I sent my family. And speaking of power chairs, Archer has gotten so good at his that they came and reprogrammed it for double speed. Can you imagine that? All these things are programmed by a computer to not go too fast or too slow. So it's life in the fast lane now. I'm sending you much love and thanks today. We are preparing for a weekend of visitors to our hospital room, and Archer is very much looking forward to this. Please pray again for a creative miracle. It is such a beautiful prayer. And pray for your own family and your children and your home space and your family's well-being. And as parents, our children need us to be strong and also to eat humble pie sometimes. But our children really need us. Count your blessings for your instincts and your intuition. You know that it is God who whispers to you. We just have to listen. I am trying hard to listen. Please pray for me that I can listen fully. Amen. If you have ever been in an intense situation for a long period of time, you might relate to the constant pressure cooker of so many things you need to keep track of, hope for, manage, advocate for, plan, and stay alert and ahead of. But the bright moments, like when Archer mouthed jump hugs as a fond memory, 
or when his chair speed was increased, or he finally did participate in speech therapy, and they learned how much he liked music, and they played Name That Song, and he could mouth every title and music artist. Those were moments of pure joy. They carried me. What also sustained me, and I believe sustained Archer too, were the prayer warriors and those whom I now refer to as the Hope Lifters, who continued to send Archer and me daily correspondence, words of encouragement in cards and text messages. The paraplegic man from Missouri, who had treated at Shepherd with such a positive experience, sent us daily messages over email, every day, without fail. And the one piece of paper folded in half would be delivered to our room around lunchtime each day. Most of the messages were short and similar. Archer, you can do this. It gets better. Work hard. He was also sharing with us in longer messages from time to time about his own continued progress years later and about his life. I felt like we were getting to know this stranger, and I was moved by that, and it had an impact on me. His name was John Bowders, and he was like a big brother to Archer from afar. I later learned he was the brother of a teacher at Archer's high school, and that amazed me even more, that thread of constant connection. There were also packages of gifts that arrived almost daily, too. Some had food, some had photos or CDs of quiet music. Others had religious items, and still others had natural objects I loved, like stones. One was a mobile, very delicately and lovingly handcrafted, with sticks and bird feathers on twigs, with shells tied with colored threads that hung in various lengths, which I hung where Archer could see it. It was a present from an art teacher in New Hampshire, who was a friend of my sister Lillian in Chicago. They had met when they were both getting their master's degree in art at MICA in Baltimore, at the time when Archer was a young boy. Her name is Marcy Bukakian, and with the delicate mobile was a handmade card she had sent that read, Archer, do you remember when you would come to Micah to our classrooms and studios when you were a little boy, about five years old, and you would watch us for hours? Your mom gave you a pad and colored pencils, and you would draw, and you were good. We knew you were a true artist back then, and you still are. 
I have two boys now. We made this for you. Remember the movie The Incredibles? Not all superheroes wear capes. You are our superhero. Love Marcy, Aza, and Elias. These messages were profound and lasting. You know, I can imagine now what it is like being separated from your family for long periods or overseas at war for months and how meaningful is a single letter or note or a package of something so lovingly made. Anything, really. think I will share with you more of these incredibly meaningful letters in upcoming episodes. But for now, I'm deeply aware of the power of relational connections that sustained both Archer and me. And there was something else about the impact of these kindnesses. I think they reminded Archer that he was not forgotten that we were not alone, and that he had a future. What was also constantly on my mind, too, was how to say thank you to the many people doing so much for us behind the scenes and back home. How do you? It was a constant concern in the background of my thoughts, niggling at me. I so wanted them all to know how much I loved them and appreciated them. We so needed them. You'll now hear from one of those people I was able to thank just now, seven years later, Dr. Angie Arnold, an adult psychiatrist whose patients were all women in Atlanta, Georgia. Angie is someone I became close to during Archer's time in the Shepherd Center, and you will hear why. In this brief interview segment, as we reminisce, you will also hear about the impact Archer's accident had on Dr. Arnold, which I never knew until recently and the impact of Archer himself on her. You know, we have this unique opportunity to look back six years plus later. Yeah, to a a time of crisis and chaos and great uncertainty in my life. And I've really been looking forward to this time with you because we haven't spoken since that time. And I've been wondering, even to this day, how it was that you actually entered my life because you were very important in my life. How did that come about? I'll tell you, Louise, it was, it was, I think it was sort of a miracle. I was 
with some women at church. And, and then this came over that a person, like we had a big announcement in our bulletin that there was someone at the Shepherd Center from Maryland who needed support and their child had been injured. And how could we go in and help? Well, the funny thing is that the reason they sort of tagged me is because I'm a psychiatrist and they decided that you might need a psychiatrist going through this. I probably did. <laughs> but, but instead we became friends. <laughs> wow. I, I mean, Louise, I truly do remember it like it was yesterday. I do too, I, Andrew. I remember it like it was yesterday. What, what do you remember most about it? First of all, I had never done any work at the Shepherd Center. I had never stepped foot in the Shepherd Center. And I can I remember how I first felt when I went in the room and saw Archer in the state that he was in. I'll, I'll just never forget that. What was it like? I was so I was so sad for him. I was so sad for your family. And and I'll tell you something else too. I went home and immediately told two of my children who were very strong, you know, they're like swim, right? They're very big swimmers. And I said, please don't ever dive into anything. Please don't ever dive into the ocean. And I tell, and I'm telling you, Louise, I have told people that from here on, I've told people and I would talk about Archer and his horrific accident. And I've told people, I said, the way you prevent an accident like this is you don't dive into the ocean and you don't dive into a lake. Just don't do it. I think my children got tired of hearing it, but I remember, I remember bringing Archer dinner. I remember the time we spent over there. I brought my son over there to meet Archer. And sometimes John would sit with Archer while you and I went out and did something. Cause I felt like you needed a good meal every once in a while and not to be at the hospital. I do. I, oh, I remember one time we brought him cinnamon rolls. He loved our cinnamon rolls. Do you remember that? I do, because you and brought we them hot. <laughs> mm-hmm. They were hot because I lived right around the corner. It was amazing. I lived right around the corner from the Shepherd Center. It was an amazing experience to be a part of. As sad as it, as sad as it was while he was going through all of that, it was, it was an honor to be a part of it with you and to get to know you. It really was. Well, the honor was mine because your generosity was constant, Angie. And I, I Do you remember, remember we went and got our nails done. Yes, I remember we when we went. Yes, with I tried Diane. to do everything I could to help you because I just thought you needed some normalcy in your life, right? I remember talking with you about that. Like almost we were like giggling, laughing, and I, I remember crying. And saying, like, uh-huh. here I am, and I'm having such a lovely time with you. And then Archer's in the, you know, he's back at Shepherd, and you would be like, we're just going to be girls together. That's and right. it was such a reprieve. Uh-huh. It was just such a reprieve. Yeah, we got our nails done. And you took me so generously to your club. I, I just remember feeling like a lady again. Like, uh-huh. I, I even, you know, I didn't have any clothes at the Shepherd Center. I came with a bag of one set of clothes, and I, I and I had one remember suit. Remember when we went and got you some shoes? Yes, I do. I do because but, and I had to, to get see, the shoes because I was trying to, to work. Yes, you <laughs> got to see Angie's world, didn't you? <laughs> right. 
That's right. But I did and have we, these thoughts. Go ahead. And we and we just came together, didn't we, Louise? We did. There was there was nothing difficult about this. No, we just I, I came think together like buds, didn't we? We came together like buds who were two professional women mm-hmm. who also had children, kind of juggling mm-hmm. it all, and and there was a spiritual component that also really attracted us to each other. I remember Mm -hmm. that very strongly. Um, I was already becoming accustomed to the folks in the South being very Christian um, and very outwardly so. And that was very, very new and different because when I grew up in the Midwest and even then living on the East Coast, we just didn't, you just didn't... uh, it wasn't as demonstrative. It was through yes. service projects. Um, yes. But, but you wouldn't just say, oh, Jesus Christ, or oh, you know, I don't, I don't mean in vain, but I mean, you know, like, um, oh, Jesus loves you. It just, it just wasn't, it just wasn't that kind of a way of living, if you will. And mm-hmm. when we met, and then you told me that you were um, going to become a dame in the order of Malta, Mm-hmm. that really, um, I just also felt very kindred spirit to you, like soul mm-hmm. to soul connection in yes. this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, nobody would have ever wished for this to happen, but it was just crazy. It was crazy. The timing of it all. It was crazy. It was and and you know, it's funny because it was meant to be for us to meet each other. It was meant to be. And I, I'm with you that it was sort of a little miracle because mm-hmm. you you were very much one of these golden threads throughout the entire time that time in Atlanta tapestry was being woven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really something. You know, Angie, what I also remember was little John. About how old was he then in 2015? Well, he could drive, so he was about 16. About he 16. could drive. Okay. Remember, because he took you to a couple of places he also. He did. He would pick mm-hmm. me up and take me In into his red Mustang. Errand. Yes, exactly. He was so <laughs> proud of that car. We still have that red Mustang. <laughs> yes, that's so right. Oh, my gosh. And I remember just thinking, this, this young man, he is so spiffed up, you know, and so proud. And what a what a gentleman he was to care and for me like that. And he would sit with Archer at times. Yes, when, when we would like yeah, that's... bop out and bop back in, just to yes. even go across the street to the store and mm-hmm. back. It was never mm-hmm. anything really more than that. But I do remember driving around with you though, and seeing like a beautiful park, and mm-hmm. and where the church was, and it just felt like normal like I like this yes. I'm seeing a normal town um mm-hmm. rather than just living inside the, inside the walls of, of the a hospital. building right yeah because I think you can lose perspective if that's all you see don't you believe I do uh, you I, could I, so I really lose do. perspective and kind of lose your mind in there and, and it, you couldn't you couldn't just feel like everything was was about whether Archer was going to get off of the ventilator or if his, if his lungs were going to heal from all of that water that he had ingested. Right. I mean, I remember every step of the way that you had to take with him. Don't you wonder what he remembers about being in the hospital? I wonder many things. Mm -hmm. I do. 
I remember feeding him and mm-hmm. sitting with him. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't communicate at all. Oh. I mean, not, not by his voice. Yeah. And I remember all of the things in his room, all of the beautiful, oh, all of the beautiful wishes that people, we ran out, you ran out of wall space, didn't you? We did. We ran out of wall people space. People sent him so many things. And, and we were the, hang, the hanging things from the ceiling and kind of uh-huh. ran out of that because we wanted to keep a clear vision so we could see outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. People I mean, were very it, was, it was, it was easy. It was easy to sort of fall in love with your son. There was some, there was just something about him. I mean, I, I felt very connected to him. Mm. I really did. I don't know if you know that, but I did. So I thought about sweet. him every day. I wanted to come and see him as much as I could. I don't know what it is about Archer. Um, I mean, I should be just gracious and say, oh, that's so kind, which I will be. But I, mm-hmm. I do think there's something about Archer. There's a light that he carries within. And I think you, I think any of us, we see it around him. It's very, and feel it. Mm-hmm. yeah, we feel it. He's without guile. He's without malice, judgment, even, right. even when grave errors and mistakes have been made by others that have cost him dearly. He has never judged or, or held anything, any animosity about that. It's just more like everybody's just doing their best. Just, you know, keep, yeah. keep on going. Yeah, there was, some, there was some sort of presence in his room. You, you know, of course, at first when I saw him, it was shocking and you felt so sorry for him and, and things like that. But that, that went away with each visit. I mean, I always worried about him, mainly because his lungs were in such bad shape. From swallowing all that seawater. I'll never forget that. But he wasn't this person laying in the bed. I mean, he was a real, he was a real human being. I didn't see him as a patient. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. Why do you suppose that is or was? I don't know, Louise. I think like you said, there's got to be something about him. He was just, he was just so sweet to be around in the hospital you know that yeah he's a gentle even though soul he really he is even though he really couldn't you know he couldn't communicate by his mouth but i don't ever remember i don't there there was never a bad attitude in him was there never he really did well he did he did tell me oh one time to go uh-huh. f off um, and I was delighted when he did in fact i was like whoa all right <laughs> I'm like, you're such, and and he had every right to say it about what it was I was doing, but that was it. That, that was, that, that was it. Um, it was really, it really was kind of extraordinary. You know, it's funny from a, you know, with you and your, your background as a psychiatrist, what, what are your views about trauma and, and people, I think, so my question, I think, as I'm thinking about it right now, might be twofold. Your views about the person who's injured, like an archer, and your views about a, a parent or parents like like me and our family. I think that your family, you know, I didn't really know if y'all wanted him to leave and maybe he didn't have a place where you wanted him to go next. 
but he had so much, he had so much family support and there was so much love around him all the time. You know, Louise, I think that, I think that the way that Archer got through that, it has, and I'm just going to say this, it has to be a testament to the way he was raised. Difficult times in your life have a mysterious soul-to-soul connection way of bringing very special people into your life. I bet you have experiences of that as well. As we close, I found this text from this day in the story. It's from Allison Andrews Watkins, one of the Atlanta angels who was always bringing me lunch or dinner every day. And she wrote, God caused a beautiful thing to happen this morning. When I went by Shepherd to drop something off, no one was in the room and it was completely quiet. There was tons of brilliant sunlight streaming in the windows. I felt the call to get on my knees at Archer's bedside and lay my hands on his bed and on his pillow and pray for the healing that was beginning to take place. This is only the beginning of that, I'm sure. And I remember when she sent that text. It was a witnessing moment of something I, too, knew was true. I had a feeling throughout my body. It was a tingly, knowing, alive feeling. I knew God was going to heal Archer. I felt it. And I wanted to remember the feeling. I thought about cellular memory. I remember showing Archer the text and telling him, that his legs had cellular memory, and he would walk again, even if it were not soon. And I told him that more important than that, his lungs had cellular memory and would work again too, once we strengthened his interstitial muscles. He gave me a sort of sweet smile. I hadn't seen him smile anything like that since we had arrived at the Shepherd Center. I took it in. I wanted to savor it. Even though everything else in our lives seemed to be changing, that sweet smile remained the same. In the coming weeks, we will be delving into many raw, emotional aspects of the Blink of an Eye story. Authenticity is not always pretty, or at all easy, but it is oh so very real. And we are in this journey together. I'm glad we are. Thank you. Life can change in the blink of an eye.
Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Blink of an Eye story. Tune in next week for our companion Blink of an Eye Trauma Healing Learning 15. Titration, resourcing, and body work for trauma healing with Marion Gilbert. Thank you for listening. And thank you for telling your friends about the Blink of an Eye podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at baltimoremediation.com. Blink of an Eye podcast is sponsored by the Blink of an Eye nonprofit a nonprofit created as a national resource to help change the way we respond to spinal cord injury, to include trauma healing approaches for families and medical teams across the U.S. Blink of an Eye provides a national team of SCI specialized doctors for expert opinions in the first hours of crisis, a multidisciplinary family support and navigation team for SCI families led by SCI families for the first 30 days of crisis, and a national resource library of trauma-informed responses for the first hours and days after injury, specialized for families, friends, and SCI medical staff. Blink of an Eye also offers a registry of medically unexpected SCI recoveries. Blink of an Eye will host the inaugural conference, The Science of Trauma, Hope for Trauma Healing, November 3rd, 2022. To donate and find out more, visit www.blinkofaneye.org or events.icthat.org. That's events.i, the letter C, T-H-A-T, dot org.